Welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Another fantastic day for an interview. And today I've got Kelly Wallace with me. And I need to give you guys a bit of a trigger warning because Kelly is a woman who is determined to speak out for those people who cannot speak out for themselves yet or for those people where shame and guilt has been too overpowering and buried their darkest secrets and we both agree that it's time to speak honestly about these taboos about these topics that are kept behind a bloody white fence picket fence and that are so common out there and we're talking about childhood abuse and I'm very honored to have Kelly on board here today on in my on my show. It is not an easy topic to talk about, but it is a topic that we must talk about because it is far too common. It was far too common in the past, and it's still today as we do this interview. Childhood sexual abuse, physical and emotional abuse is happening all around us, regardless where you are in this world, dear listener and viewer. It doesn't matter. If you were to know what was happening in your neighbor's house, you would be hor horrified. So, therefore, I'm so happy. Kelly, thank you very much for coming on to my show. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me to talk about this topic. And it's a brutal topic. And and how the hell do you start a show like that? So tell me, how was your... <laughs> and it's just... Fuck off. And it's just... you. you I even... Even although I must have had, oh, a good... 20, 30 guests who have specialized on that topic on my show, it still raises my my oh my anger just thinking about it. It is so wrong, yet it is so common. Do you know any figures out there? Do you know, do you know what is sort of the the the, the figures that you have come across? Conservatively, one in four girls and one in six boys is what I'm hearing. And sometimes as high as one in three, just across the board. And that is clearly a childhood sexual abuse. Uh, does the, Do you also include physical and emotional abuse in these figures? or Those statistics I don't have information on. Um, my particular area is the the childhood sexual abuse statistics but i'm sure there probably is equally unfortunately yeah. horrifying exactly no no doubt about yeah. that and it's so crazy um and we are talking here about uh you being from the united states um i know that i've had guests here from new zealand who spoke of equal figures so this is very much an uh, an undercurrent a a, a her horrific kind of lifestyle one has to say that is out there and it's nuts so okay i i, I think i've brought that my own emotions home here i parked yeah. them to the side um so anger thank you very much uh move over there <laughs> later later <laughs> <laughs> kelly i mean you you have unfortunately been on the receiving end of childhood sexual abuse. What can you actually remember? Are there still clear memories there or has your mind actually tried to protect you and tried to shelter you? The way that trauma works in the brain and the way that the trauma kind of goes with my, 
my memory of what happened is there were probably between 10 and 20 different incidents that took place. But in my head, it's it's come down to one memory and it plays like a movie in my head. Um, the incidents took place at my paternal grandparents' house on visits when I was a child, when I was visiting my dad. Um, my parents had just gone through a, a contentious divorce and my dad was living with my grandparents in the eastern part of Oregon, which is where I'm, I'm I was born in eastern Oregon. I live in Portland now, but um, they took place in a very small farming community. And so it was very rural and cowboys and um, um, very white. And so the, the episode is, it's like, it's there in my head. It plays like a memory and um, I mean, like a movie, sorry. And it, um, you know, I sometimes tuck it away. I'll bring it out um, in, in times like this, in therapy sessions, I've gone down that, that rabbit hole of the memory. Um, but it's, it's still pretty finite in my, in my brain. We have trauma reshapes the way that we can remember details. So I can remember lots of details. Which is good and which is bad at the same time. I mean, sometimes there are memories that get so deeply buried. There are case reports out of anesthesia where uh, people had had uh, problems with their musculoskeletal, their muscles. And they had injection of local anesthetic into trigger points. And suddenly they, they had no vivid memory whatsoever. And that injection, that trigger point suddenly uh, revealed an avalanche of memories that got released. Equally, uh, maybe t maybe hearing about something, hearing a sound, uh, smelling something, suddenly memories can get released and you think, oh my God. And that is, that is the problem. So many things do happen to children and sometimes we consider them as traumatic. Um, sometimes for the child, there is a lot of trauma there, whilst for a grown-up who thinks, well, what's that? Um, but with childhood sexual abuse, you can't really say that, can you? Um, so you, there were these 10, 20 incidents. Did you, did you speak to someone? Were you able to talk to someone? Yes, I actually... Before I spoke to my mom, I saw a childhood sexual awareness video in my second grade classroom right after the last incident took place. And I went into the kitchen. I can remember it was a Saturday morning and um, I love Saturday morning cartoons. And I went into the kitchen and um, it was a December morning and I walked in and told my mom what was happening. And um, thank God I saw that video in my classroom she um believed me which was very i consider myself to be very lucky the average child has to tell one or actually has to tell seven adults before they're believed and so she believed me on the first try and she knew that something was very off about me but she could not put her finger on why i had lots of anxiety. I had lots of fears that couldn't be explained. Um, I was, I was talking about wanting to die by the time I was nine. I was seven years old when I was telling her that. Um, so when I told her that 
she immediately called the police and leapt into action. And she had that, um, that belief that, you know, this happened to my child and I'm going to do whatever it takes to protect my child. And so she leapt into action and um, called the police. Child services were notified. We actually had a case manager because my parents' divorce was so contentious. There was a social worker who was assigned. And um, it was right before Christmas. So I know that around Christmas time that police detectives came over to our house. I recounted what had happened to them. And um, my grandfather was charged a couple weeks later and um, arrested, and which is also very rare. Um, so um, my memory was very strong. I had a really good recall of details because the most recent incident had took place just weeks beforehand, which is not often the case with a lot of survivors. So um, that was kind of what happened. And of course it is very unusual what you're telling me there, because as you quite rightly say, those, those kind of sequence of events are so rare. Normally it is the, the additional trauma that the child um, has to undergo when an adult doesn't believe them. When often those people that were supposed to to be trusting and or that they can trust uh, say, no, you're making that up or something like that. So I'm so pleased for you that at least that additional trauma did not occur. Um, you say that this was quite a close-knit community. Um, it's quite surprising that the police jumped into action so quickly. Were there warning signs or were there... Was, was the other predatory activity of your granddad? There were, after the, after um, he was arrested and um, people were interviewed, there were two other women that came forward who were friends of my, my aunt and my aunt was in her early 20s. So these, both of these two women were in their, I believe they were in their early 20s when they were interviewed. And they talked about him um, touching him inappropriately, but they backed down um, and they, nothing ever really came of their, nothing went further. And this was, this was a time when, you know, this type of crime was handled differently. Their, um, their testimony, my grandfather, I'm getting a little bit of ahead of myself, but um, there was a trial and I had to testify and their testimony was not, their information from the police reports from their interviews was not allowed into the trial. So um, there were others and the close-knit community, there was a lot at stake for my um, my grandfather and his family. My grandfather was farming with two other family members. And so there was a business at stake, a family business was at stake. And um, there were other things that came into play. My dad was a assistant district attorney in the same county where he was charged. So um, not 
100% certain, but I believe that my dad probably had a hand in his, um, uh, with his legal assistance. So um, there were lots of things kind of going mm. against, <laughs> against um, me. And so everyone battened down the hatches and stood by my grandfather. And this was in the times of you never heard from from the victims. You only heard from the supporters. Um, and so, again, very different time, very different time. When was that? When was it was uh, December 1984. So it was the mid 80s. Um, and, and at that time, there were things like the McMartin preschool um, trial going on, which was um, false memories were a really big thing. People talked quite a bit about that. Um, it was relatively new in terms of, um, it wasn't really until the mid seventies that a lot of um, awareness around child sexual abuse kind of started coming into play. So that's only 10 years. Um, You're quite right. Time. quite right. Yeah, lots of, lots of things. It's just a totally different environment. The role of man was very differently. Mm -hmm. um, handled i mean to to be a man you have to lay as many women as possible drink hard play hard and um, variations of that theme has been permeating mm -hmm. any kind of society and still does today so with that also came i mean after all the, the, the sexual revolution was only 20 years prior to that so right. men and women went out there and copulated like rabbits and that is something that we maybe don't really want to accept and, and acknowledge yet the moment the pill came onto the the scene women started behaving very very differently so there was a very lot of confusion i guess about the roles of women and men and with that i do not apologize anyone for childhood sexual abuse but i'm just trying to put things into a perspective uh we are judging by 2022 standards when really right. life in the 70s 80s was very very different norms so different. are very very different and after all we should not forget the intergenerational trauma did you ever figure out if your granddad was actually abused himself we, um, in conversations with my mom, um, he, he was raised by, he was basically abandoned by his own mom. And um, he was raised by, by a bunch of cowboys in the depression. And so um, he slept in a bed with grown men. And so that we kind of know about um, my dad slept in a in a bed with his brothers with my grandfather so it's there's mm -hmm. all kinds of mm -hmm. ick factor you know going on and um and that is yeah. something that there is this silent generation after the second world war uh it's not for nothing that they're called like that but i mean we have no idea nowadays about the traumas that went on mm -hmm. in the childhoods of those people and can you imagine how much that has led to core beliefs that are probably not so conducive to a healthy 
um, life of integrity, humility, and the way that we like to think about people. Um, mm -hmm. So this is a very murky, murky water that we are stirring up by walking through. So this is dodgy. To, it's very hard. I can understand the policeman to say, bloody hell, what do we make out of that? Um, it is it is very, very hard. But here you were and you, you gave it a shot. The, the trial went to nothing the way I understand it. Um, that is correct, isn't it? Yes. Um, so my grandfather was charged. There was supposed to be a trial in April, which would have been five months after I made the allegations. Oh. And it got pushed back to July. And then it got pushed back to December. So by the time that my grandfather went to trial, a full year had gone by. And my recall of events was good but it still wasn't super great because so much time had elapsed yeah. and I also had my um my dad was doing things like showing up at my school trying to talk to me trying to talk to my teachers trying to talk to my principal trying to convince them that mm. oh Kelly's just mm. confused there's a very divorce you know her head's not in the right place. Um, but I had um, early intervention. I had a therapist who saw that my recall of events was so strong. She testified at the trial. And um, the, the really, also another important thing to consider is that 95% of all um, charges that are brought, they don't go to trial. So only 5% only go to trial. And then the prosecution rates are around 2.8%. So the deck was just like stacked against me. And um, so, and again, you know, my, my grandfather had hired like a very expensive legal team. He had my dad who was helping him like write questions for for the defense. So all kinds of, you know, really shady things were, were taking place. Wow. Wow. So here you are. How old are you now when the trial comes to eight? eight. Great. Um, so the trial didn't go to anything, but here you were essentially in their eyes trying to destroy the family. Yeah, I was. Became, did you become a pariah thereafter? Oh, well, completely. I mean, the entire family, you know, stopped talking to me. My grandmother, it's alleged, ran around and my paternal grandmother called me Crazy Kelly. Um, I mean, I don't know for sure if that is true. I've heard that third hand. But yeah, I was, I was painted as um yeah someone who who made made the story up my mom was coaching me I mean all kinds of things were you know thrown your, around your mom was your ally your mom was by your side yeah my mom was trying to protect me yeah. and um she was made out to be a, a pariah as well and um so yeah just 
how very... was school then? I mean, was that because it was such a small community uh, where the children teasing and bullying you about it or well thankfully my mom lived um on the western she had moved us to the western part of the state about oh. four hours five hours away oh, so nice. Nice. none of my schoolmates knew good any of this stuff yeah 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 <laughs> but i had um i had troubles in school because i was so quiet and I had an anxiety disorder and I had um, a learning disability that made what I call auditory processing very difficult. So basically taking um, standardized testing was really hard for me and I just did not test well at all. So um, all of those things were just kind of a, a perfect cocktail to just not doing well in school and it's only been in the last couple of years that I've really brought all of that into focus and really realized how many barriers I had in school um, growing up you are not the first you will not be the last one this is such right. a common common story in children who have been abused um, it's so hard for children to make sense out of things. And sometimes the trauma affects the brain in such a way that indeed um, that is, uh, it's, it's virtually impossible for normal processing to occur. Um, I had recently a guest who was unable to concentrate and her her memory was shocking for much mm -hmm. of her childhood uh, year she was being labeled a retard uh in the school system and uh without the help of a of a special uh angel of a teacher she would have never been the successful woman that she is nowadays and but it was you know it was to a degree that uh, this patient patient sorry this guest told me yeah. um that um that she was able to count one day to 18 uh and then the next day she was struggling to remember from 1 to 14 and and simple things like that you have to i think she read the same book again and again every year for 7 mm -hmm. years uh because she actually could not memorize anything and it is yeah. such such messed up heads that we are dealing with. Um, and it's by no means thought of the, the little one, but that is yeah. what trauma can do. And we often don't see it as such. We don't. Right. Oh, you just see, see an outcome and we are so ready to label and we are so ready to put things into little holes um and that is the brutal thing so here you were struggling at school your mom probably struggling financially um oh yes exactly single mom isolated from society hell how did that continue um after the trial um you know thankfully i had been I had been plunged into this early intervention therapy. I had individual counseling. I had group counseling with other little girls that were, were also being molested. And I, I really credit that to giving me the ability to, you know, get through school. My mom had to take 
a lot of time off of work and she actually ended up quitting her job and going back to school to get her, her master's degree in teaching. She was a, a teacher by training before my parents were born. Yeah. So, um, you know, third, fourth, fifth grades, um, I think we were living off of like student loan money while my mom was going to school. And um, so we, she graduated from college and then we kind of moved around a bunch and um, we finally settled in um, Salem, which is the capital of Oregon. And that was around eighth grade. And so um, it was such a awkward time to be, you know, moving around because you start eighth grade and it's like everyone knows each other. And, and it's this middle school is like, hell on earth you could not pay, you couldn't pay enough money to go back to middle school or high school for that matter um but during middle and high school I was very awkward and very weird I found um I had a few friends but stop, I was stop, stop. Just, can you tell yeah. me can you tell me one child that feels normal in middle school so hang on so <laughs> that very I weird know. that applies to virtually everyone I, I know, know. So, I know. I, but you, you, I know. you think you're one step more than that than, than I, <laughs> I know exactly exactly <laughs> um I guess the, I guess the one um kind of interesting thing about about me during all that weirdness was that um you know I was I was reading anything and everything I could get that get my hands on I was reading the phone book I was reading the newspaper <laughs> and I was <laughs> reading the business section of our newspaper which is just a small town business section but I was like really um interested in you know businesses that were opening who was rising in this position and and I was like I don't know what this means but I just kind of tucked it away I guess um and it wasn't until years later that I kind of you know I I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself when I graduated from college and and I realized I really wanted to be in business for myself. I didn't ever want to work for anyone ever again. And that was, I think that is why, because I couldn't, I wasn't like a straight A student, but there were these, there was that business stuff that I was kind of interested in. And um, there it was lurking around like 10 years later. <laughs> Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert yeah. P. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. there is nothing wrong with that. It yeah. is. Unfortunately, I became Poor Dad for far too long. <laughs> um, poor Dad as in making a lot of money, working my ass off. And, and uh, only nowadays the, am I finally financially literate enough to actually say, yeah. man, you're an idiot for for. <laughs> Or you were so misguided, shall I say, M misguided? Yeah. Let's call it like that. I, 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 working so hard to keep those negative voices quiet. Um, who telling me, oh, you idiot, you failure, you? Yeah. Oh, look at you. Do you have these these negative voices nowadays still? I mean, you, they, did you have negative voices when you were a child? When I, yeah, I had them when I was a a child. Um. They manifested in 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 strange ways, like just feeling 
like a complete weirdo, like not being able to identify with anyone. Um, and it wasn't until I got sober that I realized, oh, I'm a, I'm a weirdo because we're all the people in the rooms of AA were weirdos, but, um, it kind of started to make sense to me. Um, but yeah, I, I think I blanked on your question. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. I, I, I took yeah. I took you from left field, so that's that's unfair. Oh, yeah, it's um, okay. It's okay. But here we were. Here you were, basically a woman who, or a, a girl who, yeah. did a superhuman uh, feat, a superhuman action, and unfortunately mm. didn't go anywhere. Um, yeah. So there you were, confused, trying to fit in, not fitting in, calling yourself a weirdo. And sooner or later, you come across alcohol. And can you remember the first time you drank? Yeah, the first time I drank, I was I was babysitting. And I... <laughs> Maybe a bad had, time to start. <laughs> yeah, a pretty, like a pretty bad... That was, that was my thought process. Well, my thought process was um, I'm taking care of two kids. They were not they were not home they were out playing in the neighborhood and their parents had a box of uh franzia which is like box wine in the refrigerator and i was like oh now seems like a good idea to have a glass of wine um i'm not going anywhere <laughs> i mean thankfully Thankfully, I took a couple sips of it and I was like, I cannot stand the taste of this. I always, I never liked the taste of alcohol. And I poured it down the, the kitchen sink and washed the glass and got rid of all the evidence and, um, you know, ate a bunch of mints. And, um, but yeah, that was my, I mean, my thought process around alcohol was like, let's take a drink when you're watching children not not good not normal um thinking but it wasn't really until um I got to college and I went to a very small women's college in the middle of upstate New York and there was nothing to do except drink or study <laughs> pretty much um the town was 150 people and um yeah, those were, those were the choices. And so alcohol, like, saved me when I was, it was, it was the thing that I was looking for to make me feel normal. And mm. it made me, it did its job for a little while. I felt even and like my anxiety is not here anymore. I can have conversations with people without feeling like a space cadet. And um, yeah, it evened me out. <laughs> it's what the I, problem it's exactly is- what I needed. It does exactly. You're so right. It's the same with me. It it yeah. uh, let me forget the darkness. It let me. It made me suddenly relax. I could. Mm -hmm. I was no longer constantly watching my back. I was not constantly hyper vigilant, but I could actually just relax, and that was the most beautiful sensation. I must say. The problem is the next day, you have got still your anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. You've got a hangover and anxiety. Mm -hmm. In my book, yeah. My Steps to Sobriety, I call it Hangxiety. Um, so <laughs> how did that go? I mean, so you were cool when you were when you were drunk. What about the next day? What happened? I mean, for the first couple of years, 
I didn't really have hangovers. And then, but eventually it caught up with me and I was doing things like stealing money off the bar, going into your purse and taking your cigarettes. Um, Just doing things that like, this is not normal Kelly behavior. Like, what am I doing? And um, just, you know, going out for one drink and then coming, coming back. Um, Three days later. Yeah, exactly. Like, who did I talk to? What, what is what? Like just craziness. Uh Yeah. That cycle, that cycle. Yeah. Um, At least this was a time when phones didn't have cameras and at least much of the evidence you could hide. (laughs) Nowadays, God, I feel sorry for the youth nowadays because whatever you do yeah. within two seconds is on the internet. God, at least we got away with so much. Totally, totally. <laughs> <laughs> so I I graduated, somehow I graduated from college in four years. <laughs> How I, I mean, I did not have good grades, but, but I graduated. Having said that, having said it, no, come on, let's give yeah. yourself some credit. Here you yeah. were struggling with school, um, struggling and in at, in your earlier years, yet you went to college and mm-hmm. you completed college. Come on, yeah. come on, let's give yourself yeah. some credit here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was able to do a lot of good things for myself because you know, in the research that I've, I've done, the people that are believed have much better outcomes in life. Um, so, you know, that was, I was dealt this really yucky hand, but then I was also dealt a really good hand in terms of survivor statistics and, um, was able to, yeah, graduate from college and do a lot of things that, um, you know, a lot of survivors or even most normal people couldn't do so exactly yeah so well done yeah. and then when you when you, you when you graduated from college so what what was happening was there ever a mr right coming along um or what was the job situation like then well when i was in when i was in college i discovered that well no i should back up when i was 17 um I realized that I was bisexual. I realized that I had crushes on girls and guys. Um, I never had boyfriends in high school because I didn't know how to really talk to guys. Um, I was raised by a single mom and it just, I, she didn't know really. (laughs) So I kind of was like figuring out on my own. I went to college and there was, it was a very, you know, women's colleges at that time were, um, just hotbeds for, um, like queer life. And so, um, that was, you know, a lot of my identity in college was, I was very identified with that, with that queer aspect of life. And I had some like girlfriends. And then when I graduated from college, it just kind of all went away. And I started dating, um, men. And so I had a, um, a boyfriend at the end of college and I treated him like crap. He was back in Oregon. I cheated on him and just, um, you know, the summer that I, 
Why did I cheat on him? Because I wasn't interested in him. I was waiting for someone else to come along, I think. And he was, he was buying the beer. He was buying the cigarettes. Um, We had some similar um, interests, but I just was kind of like waiting for, you're nice, but someone, there's someone better out there. And um, sure enough, I like broke his heart. And then I um, had a couple other boyfriends. And then um, in the last, I want to say six months of my drinking, I got sober when I was 23. So the last six months of my drinking, I was hanging out with a boyfriend who, you know, we were just drinking on the weekends. Um, I was never like one of those people that was drinking during the week. Usually I was more of a weekend warrior kind of drinker. And, um, you know, I'd go to the bar and have like a pack, two packs of cigarettes. And just that's, that was my life working and going to the bar and smoking and, um, I had this boyfriend. I didn't really have any friends. And um, my mom was kind of like, what are you doing with your life? And <laughs> she was kind of, she had joined Al-Anon and she was like taking a step back from me in that detached with love kind of way. And I, I didn't know. I was. I just thought she was being cold. And um, she just finally came out and said it one day. She was like, I think you have a problem with alcohol. Um, you know, it's on both sides, both my maternal and my paternal grandparents. I mean, grandfathers were alcoholics and, um, you know, it's, it's everywhere in my family tree. Um, so, um, yeah. And then I went to an AA meeting in the town that I was living in. I was living in the suburb of Portland and um, it was a huge meeting. I mean, there were, to me, it was huge. There were like 75, 100 people in this meeting. Wow. And, yeah. <laughs> I, a lot of fish hats in Oregon, may I say. I That's good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So like I, they, I made myself share. I was like, I have to, I have to share. My, my heart was like beating out of my chest and I was like, I got to share. I'm never going to share. So I shared, you know, I'm new. and all these women came up to me after the meeting and gave me their phone numbers and gave me rides to meetings. And I found a sponsor and, um, cool. Did all the things that, you know, made coffee at the Friday night meeting, you know, did all, yeah, did it all. And, um, how cool is that? that? Um, does she affect that you allowed yourself to actually go to your first meeting, that is huge because denial is such a powerful part of being an addict, being an alcoholic. Yeah. Me, yeah. alcoholic, nothing wrong with me. I just have a social life. See, I don't drink during the week. Come on. See, I'm holding down a job. I went to school. What do you want? I just live a normal life. Bullshit. Mm-hmm. You did so <laughs> well but in believing your mother. Yeah. Well, I had, I had gone to AA four or five times before I tried to get sober and it just, I wasn't ready. Mm. And, but it was that, that time I was, I was ready. I was ready to, to dive in and and do the work. 
And um, it was, I mean, I think probably the best decision I ever made in my life. Um, <laughs> oh, I second that. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah. please. Yeah, yeah. And um, so beautiful to hear that you were actually relatively young uh, when you made that call. Many people have to look at the bottom of so many more barrels mm-hmm. or bottles, whatever is your your poison, um, until mm-hmm. we finally figure out it's it's we are we are just kidding ourselves. We're just trying to escape our reality. But it's intriguing. It's intriguing for me. The alcohol gave you something. Mm-hmm. You were still happy to give up the alcohol. Oh yeah. How did that work? I mean, you you said you were ready to do the work. Did that include dealing with your sexual abuse past? How did that come about? You know, that's that's interesting. Well, I had I had been in therapy in and out of of high school, and I had so I had a lot of therapy from that childhood under my belt. Um, and when I got sober I mean the the very last night that I drank I planned it I you know decided what I was going to drink where I was going to go and I told myself this is it this is the last time you're going to drink and it was it was January 26 2001 and um when I started working the steps I mean of course, my grandfather came up on my fourth and fifth step and um, my dad and my stepmom, I like all of these, all of these people from the past came up on the fourth and fifth step. And um, so I've, you know, it's been so long, I can't remember, you know, like what my problem, what my thought process was like, but, um, you know, really looking at the anger and resentment that I had towards them was good, (laughs) you know, good to look under that rock and see what was there, see what was going on. Anger and resentment. Oh, my best friends for many decades. Oh oh dear me. I was a very angry man. Um, Exactly. How did you, how did your anger come out? Um, who were you when at your worst times? That's a really good question. Um, the anger was, you know, it was directed internally and it was directed externally. Internally, the way that it showed up was, you know, you're not good enough. What are you doing? Why'd you make that decision? Um, yeah. Ex- externally, it was, um, you know, road rage, <laughs> getting cut off of traffic. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's it's still there, but you know, yes, yes. I can, I can at least identify it now. But yeah, you know, getting mad at my mom. I mean, just you know, getting or mad at my sister or just having a target you know and um that's the way how does it come that my words come out of your mouth 
<laughs> that is bizarre. Drunk. <laughs> That's true. Exactly. Yeah. Well, no, no. We are people who have been full of trauma. Yeah. And yeah. we have not done all the work because yeah. trauma comes in layers and yeah. healing comes in layers. And so I think you have done shitloads of healing in your lifetime, but there is mm -hmm. still work to be done. No two ways around that. Mm -hmm. And you and me, we better don't meet each other in traffic because I'm probably... <laughs> <laughs> You're waiting half a second here, you lazy... <laughs> I know. Why did you not put your indicator on? <laughs> you wasted you two driving? seconds of my life. <laughs> I, why are you driving on the right side of the road? No, you should be on the left side of the road. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, so, and it just shows, look, we are we are broken people. We are damaged people. And But then again, there is the, the Japanese principle of kintsugi, um, where you basically yeah. have these beautiful... Uh, beautiful pictures of porcelain that is broken and that has mm -hmm. been re-glued with golden glue. Mm -hmm. And whilst that cup or that that plate might no longer be as functional, it might be a bit leaky somewhere here or there, it is still the most beautiful thing and maybe even more beautiful. And I think yeah. that is for many of us the case. I certainly, I like to believe so. I like to believe that the person that I am now, full of the trauma, the trauma does no longer define me, but the trauma certainly made me who I am nowadays. And for right. that, I'm proud. Yeah. For that, I'm proud. Leaky and with scars and scars on the outside, scars on the inside. I, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. I like yeah. that. And you yeah. came to the same to the same conclusion because here you are nowadays. I mean, we were basically at this young woman at 23 who sort of started to get her shit together and uh, stopped drinking at least. You were talking about step four and five. Now, for those of you who don't know the, the AA 12 step mm -hmm. system, it is basically to do a brutal uh, inventory of your life where you basically go through and you make heaps of lists lists of anger of resentment who pissed you off and you are very specific you write that down this person pissed me off then because they did that and that's how it made me feel and it's you you go really into depth i mean it can take you months to actually do that and it's really really good now the problem is that sooner or later someone your mentor or your sponsor might actually take one of these lists and add another column to it and say, okay, so you're pissed off at this person who did that, who made you feel like that. What was your contribution to that whole scenario? And suddenly, things become interesting because you are challenged and you are reliving and rethinking and re-experiencing things and maybe look at them in a different light. And that is beautiful. That is where the growth happens. And that's exactly what you did. And that's right. not something you do on one afternoon, get it over and done with. That is something that takes weeks, months, and probably years. Uh, it still takes years. In that, well, actually, my lifetime, I don't think I will be finished with that job because a lot of shit has happened in my life. And guess what? It continues to happen. Um, so <laughs> I don't think your life is much better than mine. So any one of you out there who's going for shit, 
I feel you. Um, <laughs> both <laughs> Kelly and me, we're just sort of saying, ah, when will it stop? Um, so you guys, are, you're not alone. Um, but you have taken action. So both of you, uh, both as in <laughs> the viewers and listeners, you have taken action by actually yeah. listening to the show. Now, congratulations. You took action. You are no longer a victim. You actually are a survivor by actually listening to this. And then maybe we are planting more seeds, how, how more action you can take. Because now coming back to you, Kelly, you are still that, that woman who is beginning to heal. But this is a very different woman than the woman that you are today. What happened in between? Where does your resolve come from? Your, your, your drive? to make this world a better place? Well, I think it kind of goes back to what I was, what I touched on earlier about, you know, the, like the business never wanting to ever have to work for someone ever again. Um, I, I got sober. I um, got my own apartment. I, you know, I started doing these like baby steps um, in my life. And um, I, got some temp jobs and I got a permanent job. The permanent job was stupid and boring. So I started going to the library and, um, you know, checking out books about um, how to, I think I started checking out books about how to pitch a, sell a, sell a manuscript. And so I started working on a manuscript in my free time. And um, I just kind of did all these little, things there's just you know there's there's something about the way that I'm ve I'm a very like type a kind of high strung I have to be doing something all the time which is you know it's it's good but I've also realized that it is uh is a, a side effect of trauma is that that doing all the time so um I'm, you're a workaholic like me yeah yeah <laughs> because yeah, when we're yeah. working we don't have to think we don't have to feel um you can just keep going keep exactly. going <laughs> keep going just just the more you clean or the more whatever you do it will yeah. go away um so I wrote a manuscript in my free time. I started a networking group. I found an agent who was just starting out, was very green. And she, she read my book proposal and she was like, your book proposal is great. Let me see your manuscript. She read my manuscript. She's like, you need an editor. And I was like, I can't afford an editor. So I pushed that project off to the, off to the wayside for about Actually, I never came back to it. I stopped writing for five years. And um, in the meantime, I had found a job that I enjoyed helping people with disabilities find work. And I worked for someone who basically taught me everything I needed to know to get my own contract with the state of Oregon. And so I worked for her for a year and a half. And then I went off and got my own contract a couple of years later. And so I've been doing this kind of work for gosh, eight, 17, 17 years now. And, um, you know, it affords me the ability to own my own house and, um, live a fantastic life. And so I'll probably keep doing it for the rest of my life. And, um, so in the meantime, I, 
eventually, you know, I had a friend and he was a, someone that I had met in AA and he had kind of peeled off from AA. He decided it wasn't for him, but he had joined a writer's group and he was like, your story, you need to write your story, whether you fictionalize it or you write a memoir, you need to, you should do that. And so, um, around 2010, I joined a writer's group where I brought, I started writing. I brought my pages to my workshop group and read them aloud. And I got feedback on those pages. And I did that for 10 years <laughs> and um, shaped a manuscript. I have another manuscript that came out of this one manuscript. So I've got two. So because you're just, I was constantly writing and generating new material. Yeah. I have so much material. So that's. Which is beautiful. And yeah. of course, once you start writing things down, you actually give words to feelings. And you might write something in a certain way that you think, wow, I didn't realize that. And that has happened to me many a times over. You write something. One day I had a writer's block. One day I just sat down and do this crazy writing writer's book didn't know what to write and you just start writing some bullshit whatever whatever you just type 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 force yourself to type and suddenly I had this out-of-body experience because my fingers kept typing my eyes just watched the figure uh, the, the words come onto paper and I thought what the hell am I writing here and my subconscious came out with stuff where I thought fuck Sorry, I've got goosebumps here. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> it was this kind of really strange sensation where, okay, there is so much healing still to be done. And it came out on paper and you had that experience. You, you started writing these kind of things. Did that make it easier for you then to talk about it down the line? Well, you know, the, the thing about being um interviewed by police detectives talking about it in therapy um talking about my story to complete strangers i've been telling my story to complete strangers for my entire life so i can pretty much tell anyone you know hey this is what happened to me and i'm fairly comfortable with that but the one thing that changed for me when i went to my writing group and i started reading my pages aloud was i the feedback that i got was wow that is so fucked up um, just at a, on a collective level hearing from a group of seven or eight people in my group. Mm -hmm. um, and they asked questions and they said, how did it affect you in this way? How did it make mm -hmm. you feel in this situation? So um, lots of things were going on. One, I was getting that validation that what happened to me was really messed up. And I had been hearing that my entire life, but something just changed something clicked when I was going to my writing group and talking about this and then the other thing that changed was um I had a teacher that was really um you know she made us write like a 10 minute something that would have happened in 10 minutes we had to come with like 10 pages. So the level of detail, the level of feelings, <laughs> what did so-and-so smell like? What did they look like? What were they, what were their, you know, hand motions? What were they doing? And how did they do this? So I got 
to start thinking, you know, not only about myself, but also about the interior lives of my grandfather, my dad, my mom, like what were their motivations? Why were they doing this? So lots of things kind of started happening for me when I really got in there. And it was like an 11th step, which is, you know, it's like our meditation stuff where we basically get in there and um, get quiet and, you know, listen for, listen for the quiet. What happens when you stop and listen to the quiet? (laughs) You suddenly feel something growing inside of you that yeah is i don't know in my case it was it was a quiet should i do that kind of a thing my wife said uh, one day oh many moons ago maybe you should write a book and i looked at her you have lost your marbles girl um and then the seed was planted and then <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't step back the seed was in the in the in mm-hmm. the soil and maybe I should tell about the dark side that I have gone through the dark times and how I survived and how I'm a got out mm-hmm. and that was that became tentatively well let's try and I couldn't stop was that the same with you? Did you? Oh, yeah. Well, I think the thing with me was I felt like if I, that same teacher also said, you have to, you have to write at least for an hour every single day, minimum an hour. Yeah. And so I, I wrote every day for the first like three years and I, yeah, because I also had a fear that if I stopped writing the story is never going to get told. So I was driven a little bit by fear that I would just stop writing. And um, so it wasn't until I went to this writing conference in 2013, that I, I, that first memory of like, I gave myself a week off (laughs) from writing and all these people would come to a writing conference to write. And I was like, this is my week off (laughs) because I need a break. So. <laughs> okay. So where did then the conviction come to actually speak out? You you are nowadays uh, a woman who wants to raise awareness. When did mm-hmm. that occur? That I kind of started in COVID. I started working with a public speaking coach because I was like, I want to get my, I want to get my story out there more. And um, I had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to do podcasts and um, she was like, great. And so she helped me, you know, find the microphone. Um, I kind of started, you know, kind of like I'm very self-taught. I kind of just started going out there and looking at podcasts and listening to podcasts and finding ones that um, were going to be a good match for me. And I just reached out like crazy and I, you know, planted the seed. And um, now I just, you know, it's, it's something that um, I really love sharing my story. Like I said, I can, I can tell anyone my story because I've been telling it for so long and I love the podcast freedom, the the ability to just talk and, um, and talk. (laughs) 
I think your story is beautiful because it gives so much hope. It gives so much hope from a young girl who had so many hurdles to yet a businesswoman who is out there and is basically, I mean, you're a step 12 now. You're giving back to the community. You're giving back to, you're, you're helping others. And that is the most beautiful step in my experience to, to now share our stories and therefore empower others to maybe seek the help that they deserve maybe mm -hmm. deal with the trauma that they have been hiding for so long, maybe stop using the behaviors or the drugs that mm -hmm. we're helping them to escape reality. It doesn't not matter if this is alcohol or prescription drugs or gambling or sex addiction, pornography, it does not matter. Um, we all are hiding often enough from something and some of us, have become mm. professional hiders and I was certainly guilty for that and so let's stop the hiding let's actually yeah. switch on the light in those dark closets and and dust off those skeletons have a look into the eyes of these skeletons and mm. see if they still deserve to be in there or if they nowadays should not be buried once and yeah. for all. Or if you're a supernatural, then put some salt on it and burn them, burn the skeletons. That's cool with me. James Dean. <laughs> no, sorry, Dean and what was what was the other guy? Uh, sorry, I'm a supernatural fan, but now I'm I'm, I'm forgetting my heroes for crying out loud. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Maybe it's time to to look at your trauma and look at your um at what has been happening in your past and maybe maybe this time to to work on it maybe you were yeah. not ready before maybe in right now might be a good time definitely take it out of the closet and take a look at it <laughs> hey <laughs> is there a message that you would send back to the younger you maybe to the girl when she was eight years old what would you tell that girl nowadays Oh, wow. Um, I think I would probably try and have compassion for that little Kelly that did a lot of hard things at a very young age. And um, just, you know, the one, the one thing that you know, I carried for so long was I thought because my grandfather was not guilty, it was my fault. And I think that, you know, I actually, I, there's a, there's a closet back here and there's a sign on the door that says it's not your fault. And one of my spiritual um, teachers made me print that sign out and hang it up. So I think, you know, I would, tell little Kelly it's not your fault <laughs> that's powerful and what yeah. message would you send back to 15 year old weirdo keep being weird because it's gonna pay off in spades <laughs> I agree I agree normal people scare me yes you are yeah. so right live 
authentically, whoever that is. If you love Supernatural, you are, get the posters. Come on, get the t-shirt for crying out loud. (laughs) Okay, so absolutely right. That's what I do in my photography. I I'm, I do. I'm I'm rather a darker kind of photographer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and wait until it's Halloween. Hello, bring it on. <laughs> so that is. Let's be weird. Let's be crazy. Let's be. Let your crazy light shine. Exactly. Because <laughs> then you you start owning yourself. You are no longer hiding. And if you let that little bit of craziness out, maybe it's also a start of letting other things out. Yeah. Maybe it, it's also a way of you maybe addressing some of the not so funny things in your life. So I'm all for it. I love that message. Me too. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kelly, you're an amazing woman. You are, wow. Um, you have come through Helen back and you keep a reinventing yourself be getting stronger and it is by you coming out there and being this this inspirational speaker uh, that you are by actually raising awareness for childhood sexual abuse uh, you are making this world a better place and for that i thank you and for that it is it was an honor that i had you on my show so i'm very 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 grateful that you you came today yeah now if people if people want to know more about you where can they find you i have a website Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y-W-A-L-L-A-C-E, kellywallace.org. I'm on Instagram at Kelly the Writer. I think it's Kelly the Writer. Yeah. And on Twitter, <laughs> Kelly the Writer number one, just the number Perfect. one. Check yes. it out down there, guys. I've got her social media detail in the show notes yeah. um so that's absolutely fine i can never remember mine either so that's that's why we've got the show notes for the youtube video as well Perfect. as for the uh the podcast and whilst you're down there you might as well press the like and the subscribe button so that you get more info about the, the cool guests that i bring onto my show uh, people like <laughs> kelly who who are coming out of their closet so to speak who are saying it's not my fault and who are speaking out and with that breaking taboos and therefore encouraging healthy discussions about not so healthy subjects but we need to talk about them they have been in hiding for far too long and people got away with doing nasty things no the moment we speak about that maybe we can just start around the dinner table a discussion that might save a life down the line and that is that is power. That's true power. And that is power that you all have, guys, out there. So, you know, check Kelly's story out. Um, Kelly, your books, um, when will they be released? Or are they out already? They are not out. Um, I am working with a an editor, and this is this is it. <laughs> a paid editor um i'm making final 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 corrections right now as we speak. And so this fall that no, that no all forever <laughs> i know i know i know i know but I'll, i'm actually planning on going out on um agent submission uh, okay. in the fall so oh good on you good on <laughs> yes, you yeah and meanwhile you could do far worse than actually if you want to do something so read something Check this one out here, My Steps to Sobriety, my book, which is out there on uh, Amazon as an electronic copy and hard copy. And basically what I've written is, is 
my story, but I've given you the 12 steps uh, of, of getting clean, getting sober, but not in a religious way, but rather as in a failed business uh, way. So as much as you would help someone uh, in a business and try to look at what's going on and help them look at the things that don't work so well, throw them out, those things that maybe he could do better while you help him and so on. That is, that's normal. That's how you would help a friend. And yet it is exactly the same, what you can do maybe to yourself. And that more importantly, the life is throwing us challenges left and right. So the, the last third of the book is all about the challenges that you are facing uh, in daily life. How do you deal with toxic relationships? How do you deal with a bout of depression? How do you recognize it? All those kind of things. So go out there, check it out. By the time you've read that Kelly's books are out and then you can go straight from one to the other and <laughs> take it from there. <laughs> Kelly, you're an amazing woman. Thank you so much for coming onto my show. Thank I you. truly, truly appreciate your, your passion, your time, your effort, your honesty. It is so refreshing in nowadays world. Thank you. <laughs> An absolute pleasure. And yeah. you guys out there, look after yourself and live with passion. Bye. <laughs>
Um, yeah. So it's, it's a cool thing. So I plant the okay. seed. Uh, if you want okay. to be my guest and what I do is I make that available. So you get that, you download it, put it on your website, do whatever uh, you want. Okay. So this is awesome. a, promo- a free promotional basically for you. Awesome. But uh, it. it's Love good it. fun. And it's, yeah. it's hopefully something where people who don't have the time, they might just actually uh, invest the time in 10 minutes yeah. rather than yeah. into the hour. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sounds Fantastic. good. I'll look forward to that. Oh, absolutely. And okay. one, more, one more thing. Um, if you want me to be part of your production, um, uh, how do you call it? Public. There's a nice word for it. Um, your team, production team, publication team, i.e. Okay. Um, if you want to tell me, okay, first of all, send me a draft of your thing, um, of your book, and then tell me the date that it is coming out. Um, okay. so what I do is basically on the first day or two, uh, first week, I buy a copy that makes me a verified purchase, but I've read it already. And so yeah. I can immediately give you a five-star review. So awesome. this way, this way you get reviews because that's really what sells. Yeah. Um, totally. Okay. So I'm quite happy yeah. to do that for, for okay. uh, my fellow authors, co-authors. Of course, uh, of course. And if you could do the same for me, get a copy of I my will book, do the same for you. click through it, yeah. and then write uh, write a review. We'll that do. Would be, I would be very, very grateful for that, okay? Cool. We'll do, we'll do. Kelly, you're okay. an amazing woman. I'll let thank you go. You. So thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye. Bye.